Well, hello. Welcome back to the podcast. It's another Zoom session. And today, Andy and I are welcoming our second guest on the podcast, Mr. I should say maybe Dr. Travis Pollan. Travis, thank you so much for uh, hanging out today. And uh, yeah, man, if you wouldn't mind, just uh, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what you do. Thanks for having me on, Zach and Andy. I am Travis Pollan. I'm a personal trainer as well as a PhD in rehabilitation sciences. I got my PhD last year, so uh, I still answer to both both Mr. and Dr. Um, in fact, I, I have like a, um, a dilemma whenever I'm introducing myself, especially to like students that I'm teaching. Am I Travis? Am I Dr? Am I... I don't know, professor. I usually go professor and then they can kind of figure it out from there. But uh, like I said, I got my PhD last year. Um, I studied risk factors for injury in competitive swimmers. Um, so my, my research interests um, kind of focus on how movement affects injury risk, how training load affects injury risk, how um, previous injuries affect it, and I, I've, I've looked at swimmers. I've also done some research into ACL injury and recovery. Um, so that's kind of, that's my academic side. I've been personal training since 2013. So I've been in it for a little while now. And I've worked in a lot of different settings from commercial gyms to um, private studios to now, of course, a lot is online. Um, but I've actually been doing online since 2016. So um, kind of transitioning the people who I was seeing in person to online wasn't a huge leap of faith because I've uh, had some skin in that game for a while. Uh, I think that's that about covers it. Uh, I guess my my tagline on my website, you could say, is like, bridging the gap between rehabilitation and performance um, because of my academic credential in rehabilitation science and then my interest and in, in history as a personal trainer. And then also bridging the gap between research and practice because I have a foot in both of those worlds. Oh, uh, I, if I go back farther, I could also say that I was a, um, an adaptive athlete. I, tried out for the Paralympics in swimming in 2012, hence why I researched swimmers because of my own um, background as an athlete. And uh, I said Paralympic because I am an amputee and I was born missing my left leg, which was a rare congenital abnormality um, that resulted in me, or I was missing my left femur when I was born and that resulted in me being an above the knee amputee. Um, hence sort of also why I got into the rehabilitation sciences because um, of my intimate experience with that my whole life. So that's my life story in five minutes. Nice. One on a personal note too, you know, Zach, you and I spoke last week about writing um, or, or content creation and, and more specifically like for me writing, but Travis and I have been friends for what, five years-ish? Something, Something like that. Like that yeah. Uh, mostly online, although you, you and Kate came to visit us a couple years back. It's um, 
so Travis and I have known each other for a while now, and we, we started out as like pen pal friends. And then as I got into a little bit of writing, um, Travis became my sort of trusted go-to person for editing. So um, anytime I wrote anything that I, not, not everything, but most of the stuff that I published, at least on like more major website stuff, Travis got a look at it before anybody else did. And he's really helped me kind of, you know, curate, you know, the, the writing and the style and the voice and all that. So he's been a, a tremendous help in that regard for me as far as content creation. So um, yeah, he's been a really a good friend for me for, for those reasons. And, and we've been pen pals ever since. So the, um, the way we actually met, well, the reason that we actually met is I was, so for my online clients, I don't film, I mean, I'll occasionally film videos, but I mostly search YouTube just to find like a short clip that shows an exercise the way I want it. So I don't have to do it myself. And I stumbled on a goblet squat video uh, that Andy Van S and C had put up on his YouTube channel. And I was like, damn, that's a nice goblet squat. And for whatever reason, I, I like looked this guy up on Facebook and found it. I was like, Hey, I just wanted to let you know that I used your YouTube video of a goblet squat with my client and it was awesome. And for whatever reason, you weren't creeped out. And um, we continued to dialogue and it resulted in a, a years long friendship. And uh, the, the, the feeling of the, you know, the writing and the editing stuff is mutual because I've definitely had you look at stuff of mine too. And uh, it's always helpful to have a second set of eyes, but also a talented set of eyes because I think that you're uh, not only a brilliant trainer, but also an excellent writer. Thank you, man. I happen to agree. I happen to agree, say- Andy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut you off. I'm going to cut you off, Andy. Not only are Andy's eyes beautiful, but they are also, what, what, what do we say? Oh, they're also great for, uh, for, for editing purposes. And I have been trying to get Andy to get back into the writing game for, uh, I don't know, maybe since the last time you published something, which at this point has been just a little bit of time. Um, so hopefully all of this talking about content creation and writing these past couple episodes um, and, and maybe you know, maybe as a result of um, having a little bit of extra time to sit around and think and stew and get angry with your, <laughs> with your bicep injury there, yep. you'll come up with, you'll come up with your next great article. That's, that's what I'm truly okay. hoping for this year. All right. I'll, I'll, you know, I could use the excuse that I can't, I literally cannot use my right arm. So it's hard to type, but I will stew on some ideas and maybe I'll throw them at both of you guys. Um, but that said, we can probably segue this, you know, Travis, we, Zach and I have talked about having you on for a while now. And, you know, again, sort of the whole point of this podcast is just to like have fun, shoot the shit. But um, it just so happens that Zach and I are both down for the count with injuries and you have an, an, an education and background in rehabilitation. And so we were going to talk about, you know, maybe give the audience an update on our injuries and kind of where we're at, sort of what our training is looking like you know, bridging the gap between, you know, injury and, and return to play, maybe what our role as coaches looks like, where, where that role starts and where it ends. Um, and then I also, I did want to try to talk about this this week because we had talked about it before. Um, I did want to get a little bit into core training. So we've got kind of a, a little docket of things we can cover today. So um, I guess as far as like injury updates, 
Um, Zach, do you want to, you know, yours is probably status quo, but you want to tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. Um, well, Travis, if you haven't caught up on all the episodes, uh, I had a little skiing accident just over a month ago um, where I broke both my tibia and fibula just above the ankle. And I had to get uh, stabilization surgery, you know, with the uh, external fixator. And then a week later, I got the full plates and screws. So I've got two plates on my tibia and combined uh, 10 or 12 screws. So that's been, that particular surgery has been just over three weeks uh, ago and I'm in a boot. So I've got, um, you know, pretty decent toe movements. I've got, I would guesstimate about 50% dorsi and plantar flexion. Um, so at this point, nothing really hurts. It's just a matter of staying off of it until I hear otherwise. But Doc says it'll probably be at least another two months before I have any sort of weight bearing on it. So that is where I am today. So you're you, the boot, you're still, you're on crutches. The boot is for immobilization purposes, but you're not weight bearing on it. Correct. Yeah. So I, I take it off like half an hour a day just to give it some air, move around. That's about it. Oh, so you're even sleeping with the two. Yes. Mm -hmm. But the, that's interesting that the range of motion is, you said pretty good at the ankle, but I understand it wasn't an ankle. It was the tibia above, just above mm -hmm. the ankle. Yeah. Yeah. So that's gnarly. What, it, it's, it's pretty gnarly. Uh, so yeah, I've got about a six inch incision on my um, left side and about a four inch incision on my right side. Damn. And then of course, <laughs> like the, the, the little holes from where the, uh, the exoskeleton was, was popped in there. So it's a, it's a lot going on. Yeah. And what's the, what is the prognosis as far as like a year from now, are you back to a hundred percent skiing or like, or is that hard to say? What, what are they, what do they tell you at this point? Uh, so skiing probably won't be in the picture for a little while, but, um, the doc said that the, um, ankle is fine. My knee is fine. Um, so it's really just a matter of healing those bones. Um, so I think, you know, from, from the early feedback that I got from the doc, he said that there should be no long-term, uh, movement issue. Um, the only snafu is that there are a few pieces that broke off Yeah, that he just wired and screwed, you know, back into place. So I think a lot, especially like this kind of intermediate recovery timeline is going to depend on how those pieces heal back together or whatever they do. And is, is the expectation that you, the surgeries that you've had thus far, that's it? Or you could need further modifications, revisions, updates? It's my understanding that surgeries are done with. Cool. Yeah. That, that's what Andy thought too, until... <laughs> <laughs> I, I literally... So I saw the surgeon last week and I literally asked him, I was like, did you place bets 
on the next thing that I was going to screw up and see you about. And he laughed and he was like, no, but I should have. Cause when I had this, when I had the shoulder done, it was the same surgeon had the shoulder done. He was like, he told me, he's like, I don't want to see you back in here for this shoulder again. Right. Well, so, he didn't mention the elbow. Right. He didn't mention the elbow or the other shoulder. So I have other, you know, other things that he can help fix. Um, so yeah, he was, he, he laughed at that, but, uh, he did a good job on the shoulder. So I figured I'd hire him again for the elbow. Yeah, that's the best when you can uh, you have your own personal experience with somebody. Right. Yeah. And and he was it was pretty wild. You know, I guess I could have deduced this, but I just hadn't really thought about it. But um, I guess for like an injury update on mine. So I went into surgery Friday at about three thirty in the afternoon. There was an ACL, a, a soccer player to my right who had an ACL surgery slated right before me and another ACL slated for right after me. And this was all after like 2 p.m. on a Friday. Same surgeon. So he was doing two knees and an elbow all in the same afternoon. And and I mean, at this point, I guess the way they have it set up, it's pretty much like almost like a conveyor belt. You know, he's got the skills to to make these, you know, repairs or whatever, but it felt um, almost like a conveyor belt as far as like getting in, you know, going under anesthesia, getting done and, and, and being discharged. So, um, but yeah, I mean, for my own elbow or whatever, I think, you know, Travis, you've probably heard on the podcast, you and I talked about it, but I was deadlifting, palm up, um, and my bicep ruptured, um, there's a five centimeter displacement or, or basically my bicep shredded five centimeters away from where it attaches um, that was two weeks ago, this coming Wednesday, I was able to get seen and get slated for surgery within a week. Um, that was Friday. And then I see this surgeon for follow-up today. Um, and I've been in a sling and in an external cast to hold my elbow at 90 degrees since Friday, the external cast will be off today. And they'll put me in the sort of, he called it something and I don't remember, but it's basically like a splint with like a dial is what I gathered where, you know, they can sort of hold me in a certain position. And then I guess over time kind of open that up. Um, as far as I know, and I haven't seen him yet for follow-up, as far as I know, surgery went well, it was very straightforward. Um, he made an incision on my forearm, went up into my you know bicep, found the torn muscle, pulled it back down, stapled it back in and then you know released me so um yeah uh i see him today i start pt twice a week for the next four months um starting tomorrow and then um, as far as return to play this one's you know the shoulder is six months of rehab and then even then it's another i want to say it was eight to ten months before i was like back a hundred percent as far as like movement quality and probably strength would be about ten months um, the elbow, as long as I don't do anything to disrupt that healing process, which would be easy to do, um, I should be returned to play hundred percent after six months. Um, so much shorter time frame, and, you know, the significant difference being like an elbow is one, like having your shoulder immobilized hurts and it's like hard to not move. An elbow, like I can still move my arm. I can still like take my arm up overhead, kind of sort of around my back, kind of, but my elbow stays at 90 degrees. So as far as like movement quality, 
um, it's not nearly as bad as the as the shoulder. So for that reason, I don't feel I'm discouraged just because I can't. It's my right hand, so I can't do a lot. But um, I'm ready to kind of like you know move on with it and start rehab and, and, and get back to doing all the things I like to do. I'm interested to see what the rehab will be, and I guess it'll be a lot of range of motion stuff at first, but like very small amounts, right? Right. That's the whole, that's the whole thing about disrupting the staple or the the reattachment is that you have to stretch that very slowly. Right. And I'm using the same PT that rehab my shoulder. So between the surgeon who, who did my shoulder PT, who did my shoulder using the same PT. So they're very familiar with my arm at this point. And so I, I, I think that I'm in good hands as far as that rehab process, it really will come down to me not doing anything too soon to disrupt that healing process. So like I said, you know, off air, it'll be six weeks in a sling. And then, um, and then I can be out of the sling, but because of my job of like, you know, slinging barbells around helping clients or whatever, you know, face-to-face -face coaching, I will likely stay in the sling at work for another two to four weeks after that. So up to 10 weeks in a sling, at least at work. Yeah. Uh, both to and, remind yourself and those around you that you are not fully <laughs> your capacity is reduced for and unloading barbells and spotting and all that right and people are like even now people are getting mad at me because i'm using my left side a lot you know because it's the only arm that i've got yeah and everyone's getting on my ass about it right now because they know that my left arm is compromised um and it's just a lot of moving in like weird ways just to like try to move plates and bars and so they're already you know, chirping at me, getting me to stop moving around so much. But um, my, there, I mean, my clients have been very um, gracious and patient, and uh, so it's it's been an easy process as far as continuing to work at a diminished capacity. They're used to it with you, right? <laughs> you know, I <laughs> I literally, <laughs> yeah. I mean, my shoulder was only two and a half years ago, so a lot of them remember how that was. So yes. Well, and that's a testament to your ability to retain clients over time. Right. Um, I'm just, I'm just earning my keep. All those other months where I'm not injured, I just move that much, and people are like, "Oh, he really does help a lot." I'm like, "Yeah, I'm going to take some time off." <laughs> <laughs> I, I always wonder, or I, like I wrestle with that. You know, how? Okay, so clients there to work out. How much do I have to clean up after them and set up for them versus just like stand there and let them do it i i'm very hands-on like i actually um i'm probably aside from lifting the actual weight doing the reps of the exercise aside from maybe like a demonstration um i'm moving bars moving plates you know taking clips i'm i'm probably working as hard as they are outside of the actual like physical movement that they're doing um it's always something that i've yeah. done well it gets it gets well, people to and from things faster. Right. It's just efficient. And, it, you know, it's also kind of, you know, it's just, I, I guess I look at it too as like uh, of providing a certain service. And by providing a certain service, I'm like moving bars, making sure, you know, everything's clipped up, ready to go. Um, and I've always been that way. And so not being able to do that is harder on me than it is them. Um so, yeah, I mean, they've been very patient, very understanding and, and helpful. So, it's yeah, it's good. Yeah, I just the, the other sides of the coin are I want people to be able to learn to do those things themselves. 
and I know you do too. Like, so if I'm not there one day, they can still figure out how to set the rack up and put the clips on. Right. Right. But then at the same time, like it's also part of the workout to move things around and get things set up and get the plates on and off. Um, I'm happy to help, but I, I also don't, I just full on full transparency. I don't like when people think that that part is my job and not their job. I'm happy to do it with them, but like if there's the expectation that I'm just going to do that for them and then they're going to do the exercise, like, no, that's part of the workout too. Right. Right. And I think it's just one of those things and I, I don't do a very good job of it, but it's one of those things that like, you know, it's one of those like setting those expectations when you're working with those clients or even, you know, just asking again, cause like I'm very hands-on. So I'll just even forget to ask to be like, Hey, do you mind grabbing a pair of 25s or whatever? Um, and most of the time they don't care. They're like, yeah, sure. Whatever. I'll grab whatever you need. Um, so yeah, it's really just that communication, those expectations um, and just asking. So anyway, So I guess we should talk about injury rehab then. This is what what you guys planning. Well, so um, Zach and I have going to go to PT. Right. So Zach and I have talked about this already on the podcast. We don't have to go down this road as far as like what our workouts look like now. It's basically the same thing that we always do. Just modified. So like, Um, and, and Zach, you can correct me if you, if I'm wrong, or if, if you want to update as far as like, if you've changed your programming significantly and you want to talk about it, but basically, you know, I'm still doing all the leg stuff that I can do. Um, and the only thing I've modified is, is holding on to certain things. Like, so I can't hold dumbbells. Um, so what I like to do typically is like, you know, barbell back squat, but I can't barbell back squat cause I can't rack a bar. So I've modified the tool that I'm using so that I can squat or get a lower body workout in. As far as upper body's concerned, I still work my left side, still push, pull, you know, horizontal push, pull, vertical push, pull, um, and just avoid anything that might get my other arm in the way or, or compromise. But as far as like training is concerned, it's just using different tools to get the job done than I'm usually used to. Um, Zach, I imagine your workouts are probably very similar as is, is you're modifying in ways that you know how to modify, but you're still training, um, you know, in a diminished capacity, but still trying to get, get in there and do the thing pretty frequently. Right. Yeah. I mean, I do something every single day. I just kind of go crazy if I, if I don't. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I've detailed what my basic workout, which is what I do every single day practically, um, looks like, which is obviously just a lot of upper body stuff. Um, the only thing that I think I've noticed in the past week is that it really feels like my endurance, my work capacity has gone down. Interesting. Uh, So I'm, I'm noticing that I'm just getting a little bit winded where before, like I wasn't. So I would, I mean, I would assume like just by being laid up for 22 hours out of the day is, is, you know, probably the root cause of that. Yeah. How much like crutching around are you doing? Like if you were to go for a walk, what's your, what's your range on the crutches? Well, so specifically I've been uh, at home 
on uh, my parents' farm for the last uh, going on three weeks, uh, two and a half weeks. And so I actually have a knee scooter. So I just, I just kind of scooter around the house. Um, obviously, I'm doing a lot of computer work. So I'll go outside, um, you know, 10 minutes here and there. Um, so thankfully, I really haven't had to get on my crutches lately. Um, so, so, I mean, the knee scooter is like, is like, you know, a godsend because I can actually, you know, you can use your hands and you don't get like tricep <laughs> cramps. Um, so I try to stay, you know, up and active, you know, like every, you know, couple minutes, every half an hour or so. Um, so I am getting like up and down and moving around, but I, I can assume it's just, uh, I mean, I mean, apart from that, I'm just, I'm laying up on the couch. So you know, not, not up I feel to like the... the. Probably the best thing to, to keep your endurance or whatever you want to call it up would be like a hand bike or even a, mm. like a rogue assault bike where you were just had the other leg on the, the pedal, not using it or not on the pedal mm -hmm. on like the, there's a peg, the, I bar. Think. the peg. Yeah. That's the word. Uh, and just using your other three limbs, but not everybody has access to that. So. Were you, Zach, were you getting a lot of steps in before? Uh, like, yeah, I mean, I usually would get at least six to 8,000. So, so not, not a ton, not like an abnormal amount of like walking. I say abnormal, but like no more than like 10,000 steps a day. Yeah. I mean, 10,000 would kind of be on the higher end. I mean, again, you know, I even, you know, like on the day to day, I'm still doing a lot of computer work. You know, I just have a small apartment. When I do go see the clients, I'm driving there. I'm, I'm in the home gym. So, I mean, and we're just coming out of winter. So haven't been doing a lot of, you know, long walks around the neighborhood. Um, so, yeah, I mean, all that to say that is kind of like the one bummer now that the, you know, weather is getting nicer through the spring is not having that, uh, you know, not having that walk kind of built into my schedule. Although I will say I have taken my knee scooter out around the block a few times and it's heavy duty, so I can definitely kick around. But um, yeah, so I mean, it's fun. But again, I don't really know how that bodes for like my NEAT um, or, or any other sort of metabolic impact. But that, that was just something I really just kind of noticed the other day as I was getting a little bit more winded than, than I had uh, noticed in the past. I, so do you, do you know ahead, if Travis. you're allowed to swim or you will be allowed to swim at a certain point? Um, good question. I would assume, <laughs> well, first of all, I'm not a great swimmer. Which I Perfect. guess would also make, which would make for great exercise, right? Check out, Andy's, check out Andy's old blog post on things that you're inefficient in, being the best forms of cardio. I forget what. Yeah, I published that on your side, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you yeah. Can at go some point, yeah, for sure. Okay. But I, yeah, just uh, something that's upper body dominant, that's not weight bearing, right? Um, even if you're lousy at it, you can kind of flop around and you'll still get out of breath and hopefully not drown. That's kind of like the, <laughs> the one limiting factor with that activity. 
I always tell people like swimming is great because the fear of not dying uh, burns a lot of calories. Um, <laughs> yeah, really good motivator. Sure does. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, it'll keep you floating as long as you can. Um, I, so I actually do want to, you know, in this this comes back to what we were trying to talk today, talk about today with like rehabilitation, strength training, so on and so forth. And and Travis, I'm curious your opinion on the matter. Um, I've noticed that like aerobic capacity work like just like in general aerobic capacity kind of going back to what zach was saying about being out of breath um you know while working out or whatever i feel like aerobic capacity is the adaptation that's the easiest or the quickest to sort of gain and the easiest to lose whereas like strength is something that um takes the longest to gain but the hardest to lose. And, and to put the, the latter in perspective, before I had shoulder surgery, I spent eight months working out, trying to build strength in a certain number of lifts. Um, and I got really, really strong. And then I blew out my arm and it set me back, you know, shoulder surgery set me back with rehab alone six months. Um, but when I was able to go back a hundred percent on all those major lifts, I, you know, I lost some ground for obvious reasons. I couldn't do the same things I was doing, but I regained that same ground in four months, the second time. Yeah. Um, so even though I had lost six months worth of like good quality training, I mean, I worked out a little bit, but not nearly the same degree that I was, but I was able to recover what I lost in half the time. So I'm curious if you have a professional or just personal opinion on, you know, rehab and kind of what that looks like. And if someone is about to go into surgery or just had surgery and they're going to be um, unable to perform what they could probably um, kind of like what that program, what that workout moving forward could look like uh, and why, I guess, like, what are we trying to preserve? What are we trying to accomplish? So on and so forth. Yeah, I think that there's definitely research on the, I, what's the, the opposite of gains? Atrophy. <laughs> Atrophy when it comes to muscle, but like strength uh, decline or aerobic capacity decline, like, and time frames for that. De I guess detraining would be like the broad uh, terminology for that. And then the different adaptations, how quickly they detrain. So I think like at least from my experience, what you your what you stated your experience is is the same, um, and I've I know that there's research on that, but I'm not like well versed in it. Um, but I like one thing that comes to mind when you talk about like oh, tra like training around the time of surgery before and after. There's really cool research on in ACLs that shows if you can strength train before your surgery you have better outcomes. Um, and so that's including like your, your involved side, um, just getting as strong as you can uh, because you're, you're going to, you know, make, you're going to put it through some trauma, right. Uh, mm -hmm. Through that surgery. And there's going to be a lot of atrophy and disuse that necessarily occurs through the mobilization and, and like get it, letting the surgery site itself resolve. But if you can do strength training beforehand, it sets you up for better outcomes afterwards, um, which I guess includes the just get it like reaching some level of some symmetry between sides or some some just baseline strength. 
more quickly if you're fit or have improved your fitness or strength before the surgery. So I think overall that just speaks to like people who are strong and fit who get injured are going to uh, recover more quickly from that injury. Like if, if the rehab is the same, let's say people who are more fit are going to have better outcomes and recover more quickly than people and get back to higher levels than people who did nothing, got injured, and then like going to PT for the first time was their first time engaging in any sort of formal training. Interesting. I mean, that makes intuitive sense, but um, I think a lot of people, if, if they get hurt and they're, and they're not, you know, they're not active to the degree that the three of us are active, then it makes intuitive sense to just take time off altogether. Um, and, right. and, kinda, and, it's, and what, it's not the standard of care at all to, to do that pre-op surgery, uh, pre-op PT. Um, you have to be like in really good circumstances for even to, to, for, <laughs> to get recommended to do that. Cause not all the surgeons even see the value in that. I don't think even though it's like quite clear um, it's just, it's so I say like, that's the best thing that you can do, but that's not the thing that most people are doing. Right. Which I think is pretty incredible. And I'm, I'm, I hope that, you know, the research and everything becomes more clear and, and more um, broadly accepted in the coming years. But um, yeah, I mean, even if you're, you know, I was hurt for a week before I was seen by a surgeon, I still maintained a really high, as, as best I could, a really high level of physical activity. Um, leading up. And the only reason I haven't done anything since Friday is because I was, you know, on pain pills and laid up for a couple of days, but also like my surgery incision, um, anytime I have like any elevation in blood pressure, I can feel it against that surgery incision. So the only reason I haven't worked out, you know, yesterday or today, aside from walking the dog is if I elevate my blood pressure, I can feel that surgery site. Um, so, you know, as soon as those, that site is healed and everything feels good, I'll go back to a high level of physical activity within my means. Um, and I even tell people, and this is, you know, anecdotal, uh, whatever, but um, my right shoulder, they, every time I see them, they tell me the surgeon, the, the, the uh, PAs that work with the surgeon, they say they never see anything as destructive as they saw in a 30 year old shoulder. So all the damage that I had in my shoulder was way more than they typically see for someone my age. Um, that said, he put it back together. I took my rehab seriously. I was physically active before and after um, surgery and rehab. And honestly, my right shoulder is so great now that I would voluntarily do the left one if it wasn't the most painful thing I've ever experienced. Um, but that's how good that's that awesome. right shoulder, yeah, the outcome for that was that great. And also part of the reason I went back to the same surgeon for the elbow. Um, but I think, you know, again- that's so tricky. Like I, I, I'm training a woman right now who has been having foot and knee problems for a while, maybe a year. I, I don't know. She, she had, she broke her foot and then it never fully healed. And then the knee started troubling her. And, and ultimately it's, it's OA and she likely she's 58. She likely needs a knee replacement. And she's very opposed to that surgery, at least right now. And like, in general, I'm also opposed to that surgery just because it's not, well, it's, it's, it's a big deal. Right. And, um, you want to put that off as long as you can. You want to try conservative treatment. Um, 
we've been working together for, I don't know, six months, let's say. And it, she's doing better, but it still is plaguing her. And, and I, I wrestle with, and like, I, obviously I don't make the call. She makes the call. Her doctors make the call. I, I can recommend um, but I do wrestle with like, I wonder what would happen if like, she just did get the surgery and then for 15 years, like her knee would, of course, after a year or whatever of bullshit with surgery and rehab, like she'd probably be feeling a lot better. Um, right. and that's, that's like hard to, hard to re like hard to think about just especially because my tendency is like, let's try conservative care. Let's get you really strong hip knee balance all that stuff and let's see if we can improve your function improve your quality of life get you back to doing the things you want to do and like yeah we're we're working on that and we're there but seeing how she still um does have issues with it after we have been working together for a while i do wonder like you said uh, you're two years out plus from that surgery and really happy that you did it of course it was really really tough during mm -hmm. that uh, like post-surgical period but you would you wouldn't change the fact that you did it and it's just when, when do you when do you draw that like where, where when do you make that call right right one i think you know and that sort of bridges the gap to like we were talking about our role as fitness professionals when we're working with someone who has an injury that we can't resolve yeah um i'm very quick to and I think the three of us are probably going to agree on this, but y'all can chime in. I'm, I'm pretty quick to, you know, let's say we're bench pressing and shoulders are a little bit cranky, or we're squatting and knees are a little bit cranky. I'll come up with modifications to those movements um, so that we can get good work in. Um, and I'm assuming, you know, and Zach, you can comment on this because you actually work with powerlifters. I don't. Um, but I don't have to barbell bench press my clients. I don't have to barbell squat my clients. I have other tools. Um, we all do, but you know, your athletes eventually have to do these certain exercises. Um, whereas mine don't. So it, when we run into these sort of roadblocks with like cranky knees or cranky shoulders, um, I can sort of continue training at a high level with these people by making simple swaps, you know, this for that, you know, landmine presses or um, dumbbell bench pressing or goblet squatting or, you know, rear foot elevated split squatting. I have alternatives to work around, you know, cranky joints, but I am quick if we continue to run into sort of this like speed bump um, to refer out to a physical therapist or a doctor as soon as I can for the same reason that you're talking about, Travis, like, you know, are we just going to keep dragging this out and hope that, it gets better, you know, and it might, or, you know, would it be better to get seen now and, and get an assessment on it in a way that I'm not um, legally or clinically allowed to do, get a different pair of eyes on it, different opinion on it, modify this or this um, before it either becomes a, a, a big problem or it just becomes like this nagging thing that we continue to work around for you know, two, three, six months, 10 months, whatever that time frame looks like. So I'm pretty quick to refer out when I can, but um, I don't, I've, I'm curious how you guys feel as far as bridging that gap between where your role starts and stops. And when you refer out to a physician or a physical therapist. Yeah, man. Well, 
you know, I think one thing that differentiates my programming approach in general, but specifically to powerlifting athletes is the amount of novelty that I actually put into uh, programming. So I, just like any niche um, or, or sport there, there's like a super like myopic view of what training should look like. And I think it just goes back to like what you said, you have to have a lot of tools in your toolbox and a lot of modifications. So to me, um, the number one goal is getting someone stronger and expressing that strength through powerlifting, not getting someone good at powerlifting. Okay. And, and when, when, when you really keep that mindset, um, it helps keep, helps keep the train on the track, you know? Um, so yeah, to me, like the powerlifting numbers are like the, the tip of the pyramid, the expression of the strength of everything that comes before and, and below it. So somebody has like, you know, uh, a cranky shoulder, uh, bench pressing, um, there are, you know, many other, you know, paths that we can take that, you know, may be rehabilitative to the shoulder, but that's like none of my business. If it feels better then then that's cool. As long as it feels okay, actually doing the workout, that's obviously like my, my primary uh, goal. So getting people to do as much as possible in a pain-free environment is really my only guiding guiding principle. So that that could mean total volume, total frequency, total load. As long as as long as you're making progress or even PRing in different ways, um, then progress is obviously happening. And so then when it gets time to, uh, you know, competition, you know, peak programming, that's where we if necessary, make certain technique modifications or whatever. But honestly, man, like with that general approach, as long as somebody isn't too bullheaded and stubborn and just pushes through pain, um, we, we mitigate a lot of problems before they even really become problems with that particular approach. So I, especially with online training, which Travis, I'm very curious, you know, to kind of hear more of your thought process around, training people online, especially when there's pain or injury or, or whatnot. And obviously that's like a huge concern for a lot of trainers as they begin, like, you know, maybe dipping their toe in the water of online personal training. That's like the main thing that I hear. Well, how do you screen? What if somebody's hurt? Like, you know, the sky is falling. So there's, there's a lot of different approaches I realize to that whole conversation, but that's, that's kind of the, that's kind of my mindset in a nutshell. Um, but Travis, I'm, I'm curious to hear uh, your approach, especially as it applies to the clientele that you're not face to face with. Yeah, totally. So for me, the, the, I run into that in a few ways. One at an initial consultation of somebody's coming to me asking for my services and I have to decide whether to take them on. Uh, and people are finding me through my website, seeing that I'm a PhD in rehabilitation sciences. And they're often coming to me with pain problems or, or coming off of physical therapy. 
And so I have to decide whether that person I'm, I'm, they're a good candidate for my services. I'm the right fit for them. And the way that I usually weed that out is if I'm familiar with the pain complaints that they're describing. And it sounds like to me, we could get them to a fitness program with just movement modifications alone. Like, okay, let's find the exercises that you can do that are not causing pain. Um, and maybe then your pain will resolve like through some trial and error and experimentation. Uh, I'm happy to take those people on. The people who I don't take on are the ones who it sounds like they need PT more than they need me at that moment or, or some, some mix of PT and training that's more PT than I, I mean, I shouldn't be providing any PT, but you know what I mean? Like the, the things that are within our toolbox of uh, manipulating exercise selection, manipulating exercise technique, manipulating implements, training frequency, all those things that we can do that sometimes for after a month of doing it, people are out of pain. And like that, that stuff is the stuff that I'm happy to work with people on. But when they come to me with like this litany of injury history, uh, including a bunch of current things, especially th- pain complaints that I've never even heard of that I have to look up, I'm <laughs> like pretty quick to send them to someone else who I think will be able to handle those things better, especially also if there's some psychological uh, aspects to it that I think, you know, fear of movement, kinesiophobia, chronic issues like that stuff. I, like I said, I, I can work with somebody for a month or three months and like try my things and see if those things help the person. And oftentimes they do. Um, but I'm, especially in an online capacity, we're really throwing darts at the dartboard as opposed to like doing a hands-on evaluation of somebody to figure out exactly what they're, and also assessing them cycle. Like in a PT context, you're doing a really good hands-on global evaluation of the person to figure out what the most specific attack is going to be for their issue versus what I do is just like, okay, what are the things that hurts? Okay. We're going to work around those for the first month. Then we're going to slowly integrate those things through pain-free ranges of motion um, until ultimately we're doing all the things that we want to be doing. So oftentimes that just works for people. And um, if I don't think that that's going to work for somebody, then I I'll try not to take them on from the beginning. Um, as far as like what we do um, when they're like, we, we sort of already talked about the things that we can manipulate when they are, uh, when they are having some discomfort, we can tweak things. And then if somebody actually has like an injury, uh, like somebody told me the other day, like, oh, I, I um, strained my adductor on my Peloton. And I'm like, well, that's weird because how? But anyway, uh, <laughs> here, here are the modifications that we're going to make to the program right now so that you can continue. Because this is the biggest thing. You guys already talked about this with your injury scenarios you have, yeah, like very acutely, you need to take a chill pill, let things calm down. But then a few days later, let's do what we can do to continue moving. Exercise is an analgesic. Exercise helps with our mood. Um, 
deconditioning has this like bed rest has this opposite effect right so that's that's like the paradigm shift that uh we need to get people thinking about is like okay you don't need okay you strained your adductor you don't need to stop strength training altogether there are 98 things that you can do and two things that you can't do so like let's take some time to eliminate these things and then slowly reintroduce them um, and, and I, the feedback that I got with that from that woman who strained the adductor was like, she had work, been working with a previous, um, online trainer. And she said, you know, my previous online trainer was very, um, she got nervous when I would tell her I would have these things happen. She, she told me to stop doing these things. And I, I appreciated that you were very calm about it and told me to keep going like within reason. Right. And I was like, yeah, you're, you're in your fifties. Like these things are going to happen. Um, and, and it's nothing to freak out about and we can just keep plowing through with the necessary modifications. Yeah. I think, you know, some of that I'm, I'm sure comes like with experience. So I know like probably my first couple of years of being a trainer, if someone was hurt, I was freaked out more than they were. I mean, you just, you just don't know, but once you're in this game for so long and you see how resilient even like just the average Joe or Jane off the street is, um, it really shifts your, your perspective. And then on top of that, if you've been working with somebody for a long period of time or they have a good training history, um, the, yeah, the, the game is, is totally different because you start to see more opportunities than you do obstacles. So Maybe some of that is experience, but, um, yeah, I just, I just know that, um, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly know my place. Like if something hurts consistently, like I'm the first one to say, for goodness sakes, like go see a professional, um, you know, it, it can't hurt, but, um, yeah, I mean, all that to say, like, if you can keep training, um, you know, without pain, I, as cliche as it is to say, but like movement is, is medicine. So that's, as far as I'm concerned, like that's the biggest part of my job is to continue the movement train going without, you know, stimulating that pain. And then, you know, leaving that part to obviously the, the, the doctors. Yeah. Like, let's see what we can do um, to troubleshoot these things. And if after a period of time, these things aren't resolving or they're getting worse. Uh, and we've tried all the things in our toolbox, which we have like a, a big toolbox apart from putting our hands on people uh, and diagnosing then. Okay. Let's get a second set of eyes on the situation. I think, you know, and, and as far as like return to play is concerned, um, I think like what Zach said about as, like, as far as like resilience I think people are a lot more resilient or a lot tougher than they sometimes are aware. Um, so, you know, injuries happen, things happen, but as soon as you can get back into, you know, quality movement within means, but also like not even just like, you know, moving different ways or moving well, but like really like hammering it. I think there's something powerful as far as like that recovery process or just that mentality of, you know, yeah, my, my adductor is strained or, you know, my right bicep is torn or whatever, but I am, I am so capable in all of these other ways. And so um, I think it, it sort of boosts confidence. It, it, it keeps people moving. 
um, it sort of demonstrates that resilience, that that ability to to sort of overcome, you know, these you know uh, temporary shortcomings or whatever. So I think it's a really powerful like mental game to be able to you know sustain you know a small or, or maybe a significant injury and then learn how to train around it while you heal. Um, almost as if, at least for me, I'll speak for myself. It's almost like taking back control. Yeah. So like I am unable to do a lot right now because my right arm is busted but being able to go to the gym and move plates around and help clients or even get a a decent workout in on my own sort of like puts the ball back in my court like I can take control of the things that I'm in control of and as far as like my own you know mental health and physical health it doesn't really suffer even though I've suffered an injury Um, I can get back in the game um, and start you know moving in the right direction quickly. Uh, I think there's something powerful to that for people who have sustained an injury or even are afraid of getting hurt at all in the first place. Again, you know, speaking to resiliency, I think people are a lot more capable than they, than they're aware of. And so stretching those limits on occasion, I think is really good. Um, whether you're, you know, perfectly healthy or whether you're coming back from an injury. Yeah. And the, the the just the one added nuance of that is like who is this person in front of me because most of the people or i get well i don't know what the breakdown is but certain people need to be told it's okay to continue after this acute period of uh the injury is over let's get back moving Uh, you don't have to like wait eight months until it's all healed up right like you can continue moving but then other people need to be told like hold on pump the brakes um you, like you have your your certain people who are like oh my god uh, I, I didn't exercise today i didn't do my thing um i'm gonna like wither away it's like no you can take a couple days off and you can do a little bit less and you're not gonna wither away so it's just it's giving the right message to the right person right Sort of managing those expectations. Yeah. But the, the confidence thing and the, the sense of control that you have after you do get that good workout and you do all the things that you're able to do, even in the presence of that injury, is huge. Right. Right. I agree. Well, cool, man. Zach, how are we doing on time? Dude, we're, I'm doing great on time. Uh, I know it's... Uh, 35 after the hour. Um, I know you have somewhere to be. So what's what's your timeline? Well, I've got a few minutes. Y'all want to talk a little bit about core training? I don't have a lot to say. I'm actually genuinely curious about y'all's thoughts. Um, I, and we've talked about it enough. I think we should touch on it. Um, so, uh, Travis, you're our guest. I, I'm I, Like I said, I'm genuinely curious. I have a pretty meathead, simple, like, I'm going to say simple-minded approach to core training. Um, So I will reserve my thoughts. And I also talk a lot anyway. Um, So I'm going to reserve my thoughts, but I'm curious sort of your approach and your um, perspective on, you know, know, how you approach core training with your uh, clients. Yeah. So this is like one of my guilty pleasures, I guess. I don't know. It's kind of weird to say, but uh, like I enjoy thinking about the core and uh my bias i guess is that it's important but then 
I had this, this finally dawned on me maybe over the last two years is that I was prescribing a lot of core training to my clients and I was never doing my own direct core training in my own workouts. And that, cha- <laughs> that changed. Well, and, and okay, let's, I guess let's, let's address that first. Right. So um, we know that the, the big lifts or compound movements do work the core to some capacity, right? Doing push-ups and pull-ups and overhead press and squats and deadlifts, all that stuff is working the core. Uh, the core is an integrated component in those lifts. Um, but there are other things that you can do. So like those work the core to a certain amount. And then there are other ways that you can more directly train the core, whether it's isometric or whether it's dynamic. But what I, what I realized is that, like I said, I wasn't doing any of those isolated things. Um, and I, I, what changed was I started working out with a training partner who, um, for whatever reason, I, like we were both doing the workouts, but I was kind of thinking, okay, what, what does this person need? And then I'm just going to do the workouts with him. Um, and, and so we would do like the, the way that I would structure the workouts would maybe be like a push and a pull and a knee dominant squat type exercise and a hinge or hip dominant type exercise. And then like some isolation stuff, you know, arm farm, whatever. And then like the end of the workout would be core. And that's just how I kind of got into my groove with him and how I've sort of gotten into a groove with a lot of my programming these days. But what I realized was like 25% of my exercise prescription was core training. And I was like, well, what, why? Like, cause I, I sort of think, do I think it's important? Do I not think it's important? Well, then I experienced it for myself and, and I've sort of continued to experience it because now I, I have a, a different workout partner and he has a lot of like calisthenics goals uh, as far as front levers and human flags and all that stuff, which actually does require some pretty incredible core strength. So we've been doing a lot of core training and it's been interesting to see how that um, just manifests, like how, how I experience it within the workouts and how it carries over to other things. And so I guess my current stance on this is that I do like direct core training and I like a mix of isometric and dynamic exercises. And I like to think about things from like the, the perspective of, of training the anterior core, lateral core, rotary core, and even posterior core, like the erector stuff, which like, if you asked me years ago, I would have been like, oh, you don't need any of like direct erector stuff or like you just, you get enough of that with your squats and deads. Um, but I've, I don't know, for whatever reason, I've been doing more of that lately and been into it and been giving a lot of clients that stuff. And I don't, I don't know if they need it or not. Like I could do a randomized controlled trial, right? Although I don't have enough clients to make that a reality, but <laughs> the three of us could do a randomized controlled trial uh, where we gave people people um so half the people direct core exercises and half the people uh placebo or not or something else and we could test them before and after on their core strength and their big lifts and like see if that stuff matters or not but because that's a note like nobody's done that study right we're just we're sort of 
left to guess as to whether these things matter and how important they are. And I guess my inclination is people enjoy it and it definitely doesn't hurt and it might have a benefit. So let's do it. I was going to say, I'll subscribe to that last part. I, I agree with you. Um, Zach, I want you to go next, but I agree on that last part. I, I don't think it hurts. People like doing it. Um, it probably confers a little bit of benefit at least. And at least the way that I program it, it's like a filler between big lifts and, right. and they got to catch their breath anyway. Yeah. Um, so I that's kind of how I dose it. I think maybe we, you and I have talked about this before. It's not, if you have limited time, if you're working out twice a week um, and you have the ability to do more, like you, you can recover from doing like two sessions of mostly non-filler stuff. And it just depends how you structure things, whether you're, you're doing supersets or, and you're using things as fillers or whatever. But um, if you can recover from stuff, like if, you, if you're only going to do, let's say, I don't know, 16 exercises in a week, well, most of them should probably be non-core exercises and just you'll get the core from doing um, stuff that you're doing one arm at a time or, or just, just the, the big lifts where your core is involved. Um, but if you have, so, so the point is, if, if, you're, if you're short on time, it might not be the best use of your time. But if you're working out four times a week, uh, you can only do so many, there's what, six or eight, however many big lifts you want to three, however many big lifts there are. Well, if you're working out four days a week, you have lots of room to incorporate some of that lower threshold auxiliary stuff. So that's, that's where it, I guess should come into play more. Um, but it, yeah, if you're, if you're, if half of your training is core stuff and you're not doing your uh, meat and potatoes stuff and you're doing this auxiliary stuff instead, like then maybe you need to take a step back and reconsider. Okay. I like that. Zach. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm pretty big on, on core training, like in general, I think for me, the biggest thing is, is that it's really easy with core stuff to fake the funk, you know? So if, if you have person a doing a plank, mm, how, especially like with any sort of like isometric type, um, you know, core training, like we don't really know if they're just hanging on their joints or if they're actively, I mean, I think like bracing, breathing and bracing is like a layer. And then there's also a layer of just like isometric contractions in different ways, um, developing a mind muscle connection to the low abs, upper abs, obliques, even, even erectors. I think those are, are a lot of times um, kind of overlooked in the, in the training realm that I think those are like the nuances of any sort of core exercise that we really need to be getting into. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I love planks, but I make sure that my clients are tight, you know, it's like hanging hollow body raises um, or hanging hollow body holds, uh, knee or leg raises, uh, side planks, uh, McGill curl-ups, um, you know, to a certain degree, like different get up variations. Um, you know, these are all things that I sprinkle in liberally, but it always comes with a caveat of like, don't try to do 25 of these repetitions just to like get through it, like slow down, make sure that you're not jamming your neck, jamming your back, using your, 
you know, we all know the cliche thing, like you're using your hip flexors, you're not using your abs, that, that kind of thing. So really just making sure that there is that like real strong mind muscle connection with the abdominal muscles that we're targeting. And then how that also feeds into the breathing strategies. And then in this way, our core training, I think can be a little bit more applicable to all the other lifts because it's not just, oh, I have core strength or, oh, I don't have core strength. No, it's just like any other muscle. It's like, can you tighten it? Can you brace it isometrically, dynamically, whatever, as it applies to whatever else you are doing? So that's, that's kind of the way that I think about it. I guess just the, and, and not to, and I'll try not to be too long winded. I, I guess I'll, I'll sort of combine what you both said. Um, most of the people that I see in person, like face to face, I see them like twice a week. So I will lean heavily on big compound lifts more than I will direct core training just because it's a, it's a more efficient use of our time. Yeah. Um, and then people like it. And so like, especially like, like ab stuff, like we we're, you know, the three of us would characterize the core as basically everything between your shoulders and your knees. Most people would think of core as like your six pack abs. So yeah. I do both, you know, I'll do, you know, uh, core training by the definition that the three of us understand. And then, you know, flexion based ab stuff like, you know, zombie sit-ups or reverse curls or whatever. Um, because people like doing that stuff and, and they want to feel their abs engaged. They want to feel like they're doing some work. And so, I'll typically try to sprinkle stuff like that in between heavier compound lifts as a filler because they need to catch their breath to perform on those heavier lifts, but also they don't want to sit around and they like doing ab work. So, you know, a reverse crunch or, you know, a Copenhagen plank, or um, I've been doing a lot of, um, of uh, like kettlebell goblet, like marching. So you hold a kettlebell in front of you and you just slowly like high knee march. Yep. So um, stuff like that to like sprinkle in between heavier lifts. I, I do typically subscribe to the idea that as long as we're loading, you know, big lifts appropriately, we're getting, we're covering a lot of core strength training by virtue of just loading a heavy deadlift or a heavy squat um, or even a heavy goblet squat or a front squat will really light up your core. Um, as far as direct core training, Otherwise, I'm, I like really dynamic um, stuff like uh, we have a 117 pound sandbag at work. Being able to like get your hands under it, pull it to your lap and sort of hinge into a standing position. Like you have to brace a lot of stuff and move dynamically under a 117 pound load that's moving through space. Um, and then you dump it, you know, you drop it, grab it again, pick it up. So I'll lean more on pretty heavy dynamic, you know, bracing exercises like, you know, sandbag lap to stand or, you know, sandbag front squat or even, you know, weighted carries in the room. So I lean mostly on that kind of stuff. I have come away from like dead bugs and pull off pressing and stuff like that a little more in recent years, um, mostly because I don't feel like I can replicate core loading to the same degree as some of the big compound lifts. And so, um, you know, for our audience who's listening, you know, muscles contract or they don't. um, And muscles also only contract to the degree that they're required or that they're needed. Um, And so 
you know, a pop-off press is cool, but the total load on the system is pretty minimal compared to, you know, let's say a, a two kettlebell offset front squat or even a landmine press where you're loaded to one side of the body. Like, you know, a pop-off press is a great exercise, but it, it can't quite match the intensity level of other exercises at my disposal. And for that reason, I don't find it as useful um, in the grand scheme of things. Um, to your point, Travis, if I have four or five days a week, sure. It's one of those things that we have the room and the space to do it. But if I'm confined to, you know, if my creative constraints are two workouts a week with a certain client, I'm going to lean on other movements that I think capture core strengthening in a more dynamic way. Um, and so we preserve, you know, we're, we're working in, uh, we're checking a lot of boxes per unit time. Um, which is our, you know, the most limiting factor that we have with most of our clients. It's just time. And I'll just leave it at that. I think, I think that pretty much says everything. I think that's a, a really nuanced way of looking at it. And I, I like what you said about, uh, you know, the pal-off press is like, you're lit. how heavy can you really go on that? Of course, it depends on your cable system, but like I've been using 20 or 30 pounds my whole life and like I never get stronger at it, right? <laughs> Um, so I, cause I only weigh 130 pounds. It's just physics, right? It'll like knock me over at a certain point. So, um, there are other ways it just, it's what it depends on what the goal is. Right. Um, and what, how relevant your, how relevant that 30 pound pal off press is in right. the long run. Like maybe it's just the thing where you're beginner you do it it helps you to uh connect to those obliques and then it's like a phase one and you never have to do it again right yeah and, you know and again if people like it it's one of those things too like i'll check my ego on stuff like that if people like doing it like hey you know i really want to do okay here's your band yeah. or here's your and plate then, or what you yeah, know whatever I, th I think maybe the way that you manipulate it more so than trying to add load which gets hard to do over time is you do different variations to it, or you um, you you do different stances, half kneeling, like lunge position, what, whatever. Like that, the you make it more of a neuromuscular control thing than a strength thing. Right. Okay, I like that. Well, cool guys. I'm running short on time, so I, I think I should bounce. But do you guys want to end on anything in particular? I don't think so. Other than to say, uh, Travis, I, I was just checking out your uh, strength training for uh, Yogi's uh, offering, and I think that is super cool. Thank um, you. Yeah, yeah. Long Actually, story short, yoga is something that I'm getting more into uh, over the course of time. So that's that's all right up my alley. Oh well, yeah, I, I should have mentioned that I wrote my second book and released it this month. Yes. Will you actually do a plug for your work? Like for oh, real? Right. So, so I, maybe I didn't mention that I'm a two-time author. Um, first book came out a couple of years ago. I, I co-authored it with um, an NHL strength and conditioning coach. It's called uh, Speed Training for Hockey. And then um, just earlier this March, this month, I released a book called Strength Training for Yoga, which I co-authored with uh, my friend and collaborator, Jenny Rawlings, who's a yoga teacher. And so that book is a strength training program we, which for yogis as the title uh, aptly describes, but what, what the process we sort of went through was 
we did like a needs analysis, like you would do for an athlete, like what are the demands of their sport, their sport being yoga and how, what strength training exercises would you pick to uh, enhance a yoga practice, like help build strength for challenging poses or to counterbalance a yoga practice because yoga practice ha is a body weight practice that only has like upper body pushing exercises. And so we wanted to turn yogis on to rows and pull-ups and all of the different upper body pulling variations that you can do to try to um, kind of augment what you would get from a traditional mat practice or, or complement it. So uh, it's an eight week training program and uh, your listeners probably mostly aren't yogis, but it's, <laughs> it's also an eight week training program for anybody who wanted to do a um, full body three day a week training program um, that, I'm biased, but I think is very well thought out and um, probably the best work that I've put out. So, that, I, I actually was going to correct you. I have a number of clients who practice yoga, so I will um, point them oh. in your direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I could also hook them up with a discount. Uh, the book was on sale for forty percent off, and now it's like up to the full price. But uh, listeners of this podcast, I'd be happy to provide a discount to. So. Oh, very cool. Yeah, yeah. So holler at us. Well, cool, man. Yeah. Um, I, I was literally, as you were talking, I was like, I have like, I was like running through my list of clients who do yoga. I was like, okay. The, the coolest thing maybe besides the programs themselves are that we took 18 exercise, uh, 18 yoga poses and like put a picture of them and talked about the muscles that were working in them. And then gave like four to six strength training exercises that would either like directly load that pose. So like there's a yoga pose for squat. Well, of course you would do a squat, um, but also like what exercises would assist a squat? Well, a step up and a lunge. And then what exercises would be the opposite of that? Okay. Like a hanging knee raise and a reverse crunch or, or whatever. Um, so kind of breaking down the biomechanics of the poses and showing how they mirror strength training exercises for people who, you know, aren't as familiar with that world of things. Dude, that's badass. I love that. Thanks. Well, I'll send you guys copies so you can see for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm always looking Appreciate for new that. ideas, especially with, yeah, especially with some of my clients, the yoga people, especially. I always need some fresh ideas. So I'll definitely take a look at it. Yeah, like we we even came up with exercises that I've never even seen before, just as a result of like me in my collaborator on the ground and being like, okay, in wild thing, which is kind of like this back bend side plank hybrid, how would you load the upper body? Well, you can do a landmine press, but what if you did a landmine press directly out to the side in the frontal plane? And like, not to say that we invented that, but it's a pretty cool exercise that I've never seen before that gets the shoulder uh, in that plane of motion in a way that like you otherwise usually can't. That's super cool. Yeah. I'd love to check that out. Deal. Well, right, right on guys. Well, I think, uh, yeah, in the interest of, of time, we'll, we'll wrap it up here. So Travis, thank you again so much for, for chatting. I think you, you probably gave a little, um, you know, for both me and Andy, probably a, a little bit of a kind of a free pep talk session here. So uh, <laughs> we appreciate that for what it is. Um, and yeah, so you can obviously be found on Instagram websites, if you wouldn't mind just giving your, um, yeah. you know, plugs there. 
Yep. So website is travispollen.com and Instagram is fitness underscore pollinator. So those are the, the two best places to find me. Right on, man. Well, you're doing great work in this industry and Thank we you. appreciate the, uh, the, the guiding light that you provide. Um, Andy, anything else you want to wrap up on? No, I'm going to be late. So I'm going to bounce. <laughs> All right. A to Z, no BS. Thank, thank you, you so much for listening. Travis, thank you again. And we'll be in touch. Thank you. Bye, buddy. Peace.